Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 6 of the Teachings of the Doctrine of Eternal Lives on the Potter's Will, and we'll be starting with King David of Israel. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalms chapter 2 verse 9 Isaiah said, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we all are the work of thy hands. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 8 Jeremiah said, The word which came to Jerusalem from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made was of clay, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter, So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the hand of the potter's hand, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 2 through 6. Brigham Young stated, The Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the, on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. The clay that was marred in the potter's hands was thrown back into the unprepared portion to be be prepared over again, so it will be with every wicked man and woman, and every wicked nation, kingdom, and government upon the earth, sooner or later, they will be thrown back to the native element from which they originated, to be worked over again, and be prepared to enjoy some sort of a kingdom. Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 124. Heber C. Kimball stated, Elder Heber C. Kimball preached at the house of President Joseph Smith on the parable of the 18th chapter of Jeremiah of the clay in the hands of the potter, that when it, mar- then when it marred in the hands of the potter, it was cut off the will and then thrown back again into the mill to go into the next batch. And was the vessel of dishonor? But all clay that formed well in the hands of the potter and was pliable was a vessel of honor, and thus it was with the human family, and ever will be. All that are pliable in the hands of God and are obedient to his commands are vessels of honor, and God will receive them. President Joseph Smith arose and said, Brother Kimball, has given you a true explanation of the parable. End quote. Minutes of the Meeting of the Twelve in the House of the Prophet, History of the Church, Volume 4, page 478. And we're actually 55% through this reading for today. It's not that long, but I'll continue on. Upon the same principle, supposing I have a lump of clay which I put upon my will, out of which clay I want to make a jug. I have to turn it into as many as 50 or 100 shapes before I get it into a jug. 
How many shapes do you suppose you are put into before you you became a saint? Or before you become perfect and sanctified to enter into the celestial glory of God? You have got to be like that clay in the hands of the potter. Do you not know that the Lord directed the prophet anciently to go to the potter's house to see a miracle upon the will? Suppose the potter takes a lump of clay and putting it up on the will goes to work to form it into the into a vessel and works it out this way and that way and the other way but the clay is refractory and snappish or basically it's it's too hard to handle he still tries it but it will break and snap and snarl and thus the potter will work it and work it until he is satisfied he cannot bring it into the shape he wants and it mars upon the will. He takes his tool then and cuts it off the will and throws it into the mill to be ground over again until it becomes passive. Don't you think you will go to hell if you are not passive? And after it is ground there so many days and it becomes passive, he will take the same lump and make it and make of it a vessel of honor. Now do you see into that, brethren? I know the potters can. I tell you, brethren, if you are not passive, you will have to go into that mill, and perhaps to grind there 1,000 years, and then the gospel will be offered to you again. And then if you do not accept of it and become a passive, you will have to go into the mill again and thus you will have and thus you will have offers of salvation from time to time until all the human family except the sons of perdition are redeemed and the spirits of men will have the gospel as we do and they are to be judged according to men in the flesh let us be passive and take a course that will perfectly that will be perfectly submissive. Journal of Discourses, Volume One, page one hundred and sixty-one. So extremely short uh, reading today. Uh, the next chapter is Chapter Seven. It's simply entitled again, and I will be making a podcast for uh, that chapter as I will try to make one podcast per chapter unless the chapter is long and then I will make multiple parts per chapter. Um, Just thinking about my own life. When in 2003, when after I had seen the father face to face, he told me to go with Jesus, and we went and sat down on some benches, some granite benches. And as we sat and talked, he told me something that was really hard for me to hear. He told me all of the things that I've gone through in my life, all of the hard things that I have gone through in my life, that he allowed me to go through those things so that I could become the servant of God that he needed me to be. Now, if you're listening to this and you don't know anything about me, um, my, my mother and father had a child before I was born. And that child died in the womb at 17 weeks. And I don't know all that happened to my dad and my mom during that time period. I was born after that, um, a year and a half after that happened. But my dad um, he went from being a church-going person 
to um, getting into drugs really bad to the point where when my sister who is just I'm the oldest living my sister who is just under me she was born in the University of Utah hospital and my mom chose that hospital so that my dad could be there because he was in the psych uh, psych uh, ward at the University of Utah hospital when I was three years old my mom finally left my dad because of how bad his drug addictions were getting. My my mom's parents would give us money for food and he would steal it and use it for drugs. So we had no food. We were living in abject poverty and he was getting more violent with time and with as bad as his drug addictions got. So my mom was pregnant with my other sister at that time, my younger, uh, one of my younger sisters. So they had uh, me and two other daughters. But uh, my mom didn't know that she was pregnant when she left my dad. So she's a single mom pregnant and alone my grandparents started taking me when I was two years old because of the hell that we were living in and uh, they took me a lot growing up When I was five, my mom started dating this guy, a military man. And when I was six, they got married. Now, this man was in the Navy, and he uh, retired from the Navy, and then he was a military man for the Air Force, but he was a civilian. He worked on radars. I don't know exactly all that he did, but... Um, his dad was a drill instructor and this man was extremely strict in his ways Uh, if I did not make my bed so that he could um, drop a quarter onto my bed and the quarter bounce uh, he'd tear all the sheets off and the blankets off and make me do it again if there was a spot on a dish He would take all of the dishes out of the cupboards and make me clean them all over again. I would have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to shovel the driveway as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy so that when he backed out of the garage, there uh, there wasn't snow, a snow trail on the driveway. So he was really strict. And he was very abusive. And I'm not going to go into all of the abuse that I received from him, from my own father, and from my mother. But it was a lot. And I just, I don't want to talk too much of the details of what I went through. But I went through a lot. And in one of my old journals, when I was around 19 or 20 years old, I wrote down every place that I had lived from the time I was little all the way up until that age. And before I was 18, I had moved over 100 times back and forth between my grandparents, my mom's grandparents, and my biological father's grandparents, or parents, not grandparents, um, aunts and uncles. When I was 12 years old, 
my stepfather and I and the whole like my mom and my sisters we were all sitting at the table and he would sit at the head of the table and I was to sit immediately to his right and I wasn't holding my fork right because there's a proper way to do everything and he became enraged and he stabbed me with the steak knife. And that was basically the end of their marriage when he did that. Although he had burned matches out in my fingers, he had whipped me uh, with a belt, with the belt buckle. Um, but the screaming and the the I was scared to death. I remember my mom took a job at night because he wouldn't give her any money. And I would be terrified to be in the house alone with him. I would hide under the trailer, uh, the travel trailer, or in the travel trailer, or I would hide in the bushes because I was so terrified of this man. After my mom left him finally, um, I was very, uh, very emotional. And later on I would be diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder which isn't um, multiple personality disorders it just means that I see everything in black and white and um, I was diagnosed with severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder when I was 14 um, my mom picked me up from school now she had done this thing where she would pick me up from school or she would just, she wouldn't tell me she was like going to have me go live somewhere. She would just take me and then she would drop me off. And we went to um, primary children's hospital and we were seeing this psychiatrist there in the old building up on the east side Um And it was during the time that they were building the new primary children's hospital. And um, when they had finished the new primary children's hospital, we went there and we saw the same psychiatrist. And I remember we went into this room. And my mom and I were talking to this man. And then he asked her to leave so he could talk with me alone. And then when we got up, we went out a different door than my mom had gone out. And we were in a psychiatric ward. And I remember there was a window there with the speaker. And my mom told me through the window and the speaker that I would be staying there for evaluation. Which was a huge let down to me but she had done this to me many times where she had just dropped me off somewhere without telling me what was going on and I stayed there for a while and actually when I was there it was more it was a good place for me to be after I got out of there um, she took me to a, uh, a drug and alcohol rehab center. Of course, I did not know that I was going to be staying there either. And it was the same type of situation, but it was on a smaller scale. And uh, they had some workers there throw me into a padded cell 
until I calmed down because my mom was leaving me again. And all I ever wanted to do was stay with her. But I was always the one to leave. The thing about it was I wasn't even a drug addict. I never used drugs at that point. I never used alcohol. I did smoke cigarettes from the time I was 12. But I wasn't a drug addict. And I remember going to these stupid drug anonymous meetings at the Rock Chapel in Ogden, Utah. And they would be like, you know, tell us who you are and whatever. And I would be like, uh, my name is Tyson because that's what my, my first name's Mark, but that's my dad's name. And I remind my mom of my dad a lot. I talk like him. I sound like him. My name, my first name is his name. So she called me Tyson and I, I would say, my name is Tyson. And I'm not a drug addict. And they'd be like, you have to accept your weaknesses before you can heal. And I'd be like, I'm not a drug addict. I shouldn't be here. You know, like this is a place where my mom can get rid of me again. And that's the way it was until I was 16 years old when I figured when I was in 10th grade, if I did everything right and I just stayed out of the house and I had all of these extracurricular activities where I would be there late at night and then leave early in the morning that at least I could stay and have my own bed and, like, stay home. I remember my, my the uh, assistant coach from my, my swim team coming to pick me up at 4.30 in the morning and we would go lift weights or we would go do laps or whatever. And then after school, we'd be, you know, practicing Monday through Friday from right after school until, you know, 6, 7 p.m., swimming laps and just working out. And I was also on the Star Trek Club. Uh, I was also part of the ROTC. I also volunteered at the library. But all the stuff I was doing, it didn't matter because one day... My mom packed up my stuff and she took me out of school. Like we were having a swim, um, like we were doing a five mile swim for charity that day. And I was like, can I please just go say goodbye to my coach? Most of the time, I would just disappear and nobody would know what happened to me. And then I would come back and and they'd be like, what happened to you? Like, you just left. And I would be like, well, I had to go live there for a while or whatever. At least I got to say goodbye this time. So I went to live with my aunt and uncle and <coughs> a couple months later... My aunt pulls me out of school a month before the end of the 10th grade year. And she said that I had to get a job and that I had to get a job before everybody else got a job. So I didn't need to go to school. So I got a job at uh, the burger stop in Layton, Utah on Gentile, uh, Gentile Street, I think it is by Layton High. And um, they gave me a motorcycle. And then about a month goes by and my aunt comes. Now, we lived in Soda Springs, Idaho. But she had gotten a single wide trailer 
in at a trailer park in Kaysville, Utah. And uh, she comes and she says, uh, hey, I'm going to go see my husband. I'm going to take my kids. So uh, I'll be back in a week or two. I can't remember. And she gives me the keys to the, the single wide trailer. And I finish my shift and I, I ride home on my my motorcycle. And there was a note on the counter and all of their stuff was gone. And my aunt said, you're old enough to be emancipated and you're not my responsibility. And that was it. I called my mom and I was like, you know, like they just left. And she said, well, you can't come here because my boyfriend doesn't like you. My mom's boyfriend had never met me before. Uh, One other thing I wanted to talk about laying the groundwork to kind of letting you guys know how God has shaped me in in his hands. He told me, Jesus told me all that all that I had been through, he had, he had allowed for me to go through those things to make me into the servant that he needed me to be. Well, my mom started going to an LDS church when I was 12 years old and I do not believe she did it for religious reasons. I believe she did it so that she could get food and assistance from the ward. When I was 12 years old, I was given the Aaronic priesthood. But there was something different about me because of the abuse. And I'm not going to say who did this to me, but I was sexually abused and physically and mentally abused. And when you're sexually abused, you have a problem soiling your pants. And I did. And I don't know why that is, but that's something that happens to kids who have been severely abused or mostly, I think it's a sexual abuse situation. But... Because how I was, because all of the other problems, probably because I had a problem soiling my pants. They, uh, the kids at pre- in the priesthood class would gang up on me and they would beat me up and they would chuck rocks at me and, and just be relatively extremely rude to me. But that's how it was at school, too. So I'm getting abused on one end by adults, and I'm getting abuse on the other end by by students and people that are supposed to be my peers. I even, when I was in seventh grade, got beat up by a 12th grader. I don't know why he beat me up. I kind of feel sorry for that kid because his, his mom around that same same time period put a a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger but because I got in so many fights when I was young that's how I learned to fight and when I got big enough and strong enough I wasn't going to be letting people abuse me anymore but getting back to this life that I had lived I came home and there was a note on the the counter that said I was old enough to be emancipated and I wasn't her responsibility. And my mom tells me that I can't live with them because her boyfriend, who she's living with, doesn't like me. It wasn't long after that that the landlords found out that there's a 16-year-old living by himself. And I was paying the bills. I had a job. I I was just thrown out, like, no training, like, just a world of chaos. And the landlords kicked me out, didn't evict me, 
this kicked me out. And uh, luckily I had a motorcycle and a backpack. And I had a friend in Clinton, Utah that would let me, his mom let me stay in the garage. So they had a garage behind their house that was pretty empty. And we took a board and we put it up in the rafters of the garage and we made a ladder between the two by fours to get up there and that's where I slept. Eventually, my grandparents found out what had happened, and they came looking for me. And I don't remember how they found me, but but they found me. And my grandparents took me up to uh, Spencer, Idaho, which is where they lived. And I got a job driving a 1945 Deuce and a Half Navy truck in potato fields in Hamer, uh, Hamer, Idaho at Larson's Farms. I was the only person on the crew that spoke English except for my supervisor. Everybody else was, was straight from Mexico. <laughs> I mean, broken English a little bit, but pretty much I, I didn't have anybody to talk to. And we, we worked from midnight to 4 p.m., Sunday night at midnight, so basically Monday until 4 p.m. on Saturday, and we just worked. Um, You know, we got our eight hours off, but luckily I lived in... um, my grandparents let me use the motor home to live in. And then I signed up for Job Corps. And I worked until I was accepted into Job Corps. And that's why I became a diesel mechanic. Because they had a program for that. Which was... Uh, the only three things in life I've ever wanted to be was... I wanted to fly planes. Which... Uh, which was what I wanted when I was little or younger uh, until uh, something happened on the way from South Korea to Okinawa. So the military man that my mom married, we lived in Okinawa, Japan. Anyway, I don't want to go off onto that tangent, but I was terrified of airplanes after that. Um, I wanted to drive the trains which I've done and it's extremely boring and I don't like it. (laughs) And I wanted to drive a truck. So I went to this diesel mechanic school in the UAW program at Clearfield Job Corps. And I went in in October of 94 and I graduated in uh, March of of 96. After I graduated... I had nowhere to go. Um, Well, I did. I went to my cousin's house. And I shared a room with my... I don't know what what my cousin's kids are. Second cousin once removed or something like that. Anyway, but she would cry all night because she was just a baby. And then I would have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go to work and work until like 5 p.m. Driving, um, well, either sorting potatoes or fruit in a, a warehouse that was rotten fruit mixed with good fruit. And we'd have to like sort it and clean it off and pack it up and pack our trucks. And then I would deliver to Reams to Smith's, uh, to grocery stores and fruit stands and vegetable stands up and down from, I guess, Provo all the way up to Logan. And uh, that's the job that I had. And um, I, I was sick all the time because of my allergies in that place. Anyway, eventually I started using drugs 
because this whole time I have been suicidally depressed. I told my mom when we were living in Okinawa when I was nine years old that I wanted to die. I suffered from suicidal ideations from the time I was nine years old. Which would have been 1986 all the way up until about 2011. But in 1996, uh, I found myself homeless and a drug addict. Now, going back a little bit, when I was clean and I was in Job Corps, I actually became a Southern Baptist and I was going to church a lot. I was very anti-Mormon <clears throat> for many different reasons. And that's when God began to reveal himself to me. In 1995, I was taken up in the spirit and I was taken to the Salt Lake City Temple. And Jesus Christ brought me through the different rooms. And now I'd never been there before. But I knew where I was because, like, Jesus took me there. And we went through all these rooms. And we made our way up into the middle tower on the east side of the temple. And Jesus brought me up to this room, which is the highest room in the temple. And I looked in the room and I saw an altar facing east with only one place to kneel on the west side of the altar. So you'd be facing east. And then there was, like, curtains all around it, and there was a bench that went around. And interestingly enough, um, if you look, well, if you look at old pictures, I don't know what the heck they're doing to the temple now. It makes it makes me sick to my stomach. But um, if you look on the north side and the, and the south side, there's a big window up there where that room is. But they don't, there's no diagrams that say it's there. Anyway, but... Um, when I walked into that room, I walked into, I was like walking into a force field or something like I walked into that room and it was the power of God and his infinite love, which is ineffable to describe. just overwhelming the most powerful love I have ever felt and I heard the father tell me that I would be the last prophet before Jesus Christ returns I was 18 years old I was an anti-Mormon Southern Baptist that shook me I did not know what to think about that a year later I find myself homeless through my own doings I was very suicidal I wanted to die I did not want to live anymore I used drugs to basically commit suicide because I didn't I didn't want to live but I was scared to death to die because I didn't want to go to hell so I'm trapped in this state of severe suicidal ideation and extreme fear of death. So I use drugs a lot. I use alcohol a lot. I became homeless.
in the summertime it wasn't so bad, but winter winter came. I had a friend let me stay at his place uh, for a while, and I tried to get a job, but I'd hurt myself, and I I could barely walk because um, I'd hurt my back. And um, he was like, "I'm gonna kick you out. You can't pay rent. You can't help out. You know." So one day when he was at work, I went to get his gun that he kept in his closet and it wasn't there. And I was just going to like, I had bought um, painter's tarps because I was going to kill myself, but I didn't want to make a huge mess. But the gun wasn't there, so like I took the tarps and I put them on this beanbag that I slept on, and I put on the soundtrack to The Crow, which is a movie that I I thought was pretty neat, I guess. And I got um a uh the shavers, the big shavers, and I I pulled them apart, and I pulled the razor blades out of them, and I overdosed on aspirin and alcohol because I wanted to bleed out and I didn't want to clot. And I took ace bandages and I wrapped them around my upper arms so that all of my blood vessels would pop out. And I slashed hundreds of From my elbows down to my hands, to my wrists, on both my left and my right hands. And I passed out. Well, my friend had forgotten to bring his lunch with him. So on his lunch break, he came home to grab his lunch and he found me. And he called 911 and they saved my life. They saved my life. After that happened, when I had more of a clear head, I remember I was at a I was at this bookstore and I found this book on prayers. It was like a Catholic prayer book. And in it there was a a prayer that just, it hit me to the core. And I I bought the book for $4 or whatever it was. And I made that prayer and I customized it to, to me. And I wrote that prayer down on a piece of paper, which I still have to this day. And I basically said that, you know, God, my life is so screwed up. But you know, the love in my heart. And I told him if he would show me the truth and heal me, speaking of my drug addictions, I would serve him for the rest of my life. Well, it wasn't long after that, in the fall of 1996, that two missionaries, Elder King and Elder Bowman in Layton, Utah, showed up on my door, uh, doorstep, and uh, I was nice to them. But, like, oh, by the way, I had, like, I was, like, completely gothed out at this time. So, people would, like, they were scared of me. Because of the drug addictions, because of wearing black clothing, the way I was, I was kind of scary. Anyway, but these missionaries didn't, they looked past that, and... They kept coming back, and, and I would, like, say, yeah, sure, you come over at this time, and then I would, like, play games with them where I wouldn't be there, and I'd be like, oh, sorry, I wasn't there. I'm busy right now. Can you come back? 
but they kept coming back and finally I just listened to them and when they told me about how Joseph Smith like studied the scriptures and he didn't know which church to join and he knew that if he asked God that God would let him know And then they talked about the first vision and all of that. And, like, that was the first time in a very long time that I had felt peace. And they taught me how to pray. And then when they left, I went upstairs in this uh, two-bed, or it was a two-level apartment. It was a, it was an apartment with a loft, basically, in Anyway, I went upstairs and I was all alone in this apartment and I asked God if Joseph Smith was really a prophet and if the Book of Mormon was true. And when I asked, it was like hot oil started pouring into my soul like I was a vessel that was being filled up with this hot oil. It started at the top of my head and went through my whole body. And it was burning, but it wasn't painful. And I heard God's angels singing praises to him by the billions. And the overwhelming power of God's love filled me. And it was an amazing experience I wasn't on drugs at this time I was like sobered up after the suicide attempt but the amazing thing was God healed me completely Because of my conversion, I did find myself out on the streets. Because my friends were goth and they were into pagan rituals and witchcraft and white magic and black magic and all kinds of stuff. The church wouldn't help me. Those missionaries couldn't do anything for me so I was homeless from December into January of 96 97 my grandfather who had taken care of me so many times before nobody knew where I was But he was laying in bed before he put his wooden legs on because he was a, he's a double-leg amputee of World War II. And that's a, that's a story in and of itself. He saved his platoon and lost his legs in the process. And uh, he was a war hero. In fact, I have all of his medals here uh, in the room that I'm, I'm in. But he heard a voice, and the voice told him to find me and send me on a mission. So he contacted my mom. Now, my grandfather has certain power over my mom, at least he did when he was alive, because he had a lot of money, and he could tell my mom, I will take you out of the will if you don't do certain things. So anyway, my mom uh, begins looking for me, and she heard that I worked at this place. Um, she went there. I didn't work there anymore, but I had people that I was like that I would go see every once in a while, like in my homeless journey wanderings. And um, I remember this this girl that I had a huge crush on but she was uh, her name was Amber Lyon and she moved to uh, Reno, Nevada <laughs> but before she moved um, she t 
told my mom, yeah, he did work here and I see him sometimes. I'll let him know if he comes in when I'm here. So anyway, I went there and she said, hey, your mom's looking for you. Here's her phone number. Call her. I called her. As she came to pick me up, she told my grandparents that she had found me. And my grandparents drove from where they lived to where my mom lived in, in Taylorsville, Utah. And the last thing my grandpa had heard was that I was a Baptist and I was very anti-Mormon and that Joseph Smith was a false prophet and the devil deceived Joseph Smith and all the stuff from that church that I had joined. Uh, he didn't know about my conversion. So he offered me the ability to go to uh, university and I don't know what he was thinking, but he said he will even pay for my room and my board and that I could live at the uh, Little America in Salt Lake City, Utah, which was a pretty expensive hotel. I don't, I was like, wow, like I could do that. You'll do that for me. Or I could serve a mission. And I told my grandpa about my experience. And I told him that I will serve the mission. Well, my grandparents, in their lifetime, they served seven missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My grandfather was a double-leg amputee of World War II. He did not need to make money. My grandmother was retired, um, a Navy nurse, and that's how they met. She was his nurse at Angel Island after he lost his legs in World War II. So they had plenty of money, so they used their time to serve in the church. My grandfather converted when he was 35 years old. My grandmother actually converted when she was 17. But my grandfather had a specific way of teaching, which is unlike any anyone else. And from January of 97 until I went into the MTC... On May 21st, 1997, they taught me how to be a missionary. Using the Bible mostly, leading people into the Book of Mormon. I went to uh, southern Georgia on my mission. Which is interesting because I was a Baptist at one point. And I was very successful on my mission for the 11 months that I was there. I, uh, I got really sick on my mission. And uh, I won't go into all the details of that. But they had to send me home on medical leave. And um, my grandparents live out in the country. So I couldn't stay with them. Because I needed to be going to the hospital for these treatments. And I had four different doctors that I was going to. And all but three of them released me so I could go back on the mission. But I was still sick with this certain area. And I couldn't get a release from this one doctor. And my mom told me I had 30 days to get back on the mission. Or I would be out of their trailer that they had in the front of their... Uh, my grandparents put a trailer in their driveway and that's where I was only allowed to go into the house to shower and to go to the bathroom. And that, that boyfriend that my mom had that didn't like me, well, they eventually got married and he was my, another stepdad. He was in the Navy. So military guy, very hard. He, uh, I heard that he was a sundowner, which is a motorcycle gang 
but um, I think he was just associated with those guys. I don't know. But he was also a bodybuilder. <coughs> anyway, he was a jerk. <laughs> I eventually got better, but not where I was living. I lived with my sisters, and I was released from my mission, which was very uh, sad for me. But I had a CDL because of the diesel mechanics training, and I was 21 years old, so I became an over-the-road truck driver. So, anyway... All of these things that have happened in my life that are really hard for me to even now, like, I've had lots of uh, therapy over these things. I've, I have dealt with my PTSD um, to where it doesn't control me anymore. Um, the borderline personality disorder basically is... When you're young and you go through a whole bunch of traumatic events, your brain wires a certain way, your neurons wire a certain way, your pathways wire a certain way, and like people that have this this uh, borderline, we see things in black and white, not a lot of gray. It's either good or it's bad. Now, because I couldn't serve God in the mission, I wanted to serve him wherever I went. So I became this super study guy. I studied so much. But as I was studying, I'd go to these churches all throughout North America because I was an over-the-road truck driver. And I really wasn't in one congregation. But I did as much studying as I could, and I got, I felt, I, I felt the spirit a lot when I was studying and when I was doing missionary work among the different churches or different, uh, you know, talking to truck drivers, talking to regular people about the, the restored gospel. And I loved it, although I was very lonely. I used to say that truckers are the highest paid homeless people in the world. I lived in my truck. I would go home every couple of months to say hi to my mom and my brothers, or my brother and my sisters. But I was gone most of the time. But all through this time, like God is putting these trials in my way so that I can learn and so that I can grow. And Jesus tells me in 2003 when I saw him face to face with the Father. That all of those hard things that I have dealt with in my life, he allowed me to go through so that I could be become his humble servant and I'll end with this one reading um, of something that I wrote a quite a while ago but I think it goes along with what I'm talking about today about being molded in the potter's hands and like there's like certain times when we need to be crushed and ground back down into powder so that he can make us into what he needs us to be. And he allows us to go through certain things to help us to become more pliable. But this is something I wrote many years ago. I think in the trials which God gives us, we grow ten times as fast than in the calm times. So if Heavenly Father gives us a trial... It's because he needs us to grow faster so we can be prepared to do his will sooner. Just a thought. So count your blessings and thank God for your trials. Only after the trial of our faith comes the miracles.
Don't overdo things. Work on one thing at a time. We are not required to run faster than we are able in spiritual things. Satan will accuse you of all of your imperfections in in your life and make you feel worthless. Do not let him do that. If you are God's child, you are covered in the blood of the Lamb. He doesn't require instant perfection. He requires an open heart and an open mind that will progress to perfection over the long run. The atonement covers you in your weakness. So if the devil is accusing you of imperfection, let the devil know that you are clean and forgiven through the blood of the Lamb and tell the devil to go back to hell because that's where he belongs. And I say this in the name of Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening. I'll uh, try to put out another podcast here uh, probably tomorrow. Um, But it'll be chapter 7 of the Doctrine of Eternal Lives. So thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. God bless. And goodbye.